0: Hey, uh, before we jump into the third and final part of our series, Jesus, King of the Jews, let me say something to everybody here in London, also there in Somerset and wherever you may be watching around our church region. Uh, Remember next week is Easter. We're asking every person to bring somebody with them. But not only that, I want you to pray about the person you're bringing and pray for the person that you're bringing next weekend and to pray for all the people around you that are bringing people with them next weekend. And let's pray this week that God would be so experienced next weekend here at all the services of the church church, London, Somerset, at the local detention center, every place where we have folks gathering together, that folks would so experience God that they would have life change and that they would take a step of faith in the direction of Jesus. So be praying about that this week. Bring somebody with you next week for Easter because we believe it's going to be one of the best weekends of the year. Now, uh, if you've not been here or you are here, but you've been out and in, out and in, you've not been following real close, that's understandable. But one thing is for certain, uh, regardless of all the things that we've talked about in this series, as you read through the Jesus biographies, we also call them the gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And when you read the biographies of Jesus written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, one thing is really noticeable. The narratives slow down the closer that you get to the death of Jesus. Matter of fact, whenever you read biographies of famous men and women, only about 10% of that biography is dedicated to the death of the person of which the book is about. But in the Jesus biographies, it's not that way at all. Matter of fact, a third of Jesus' biographies are dedicated to telling the story around the events of his last week on earth leading up to his death. And it's almost like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John almost all had the same thought and they said to themselves, the story of God's son and his death. His death specifically needs to be told, and it not only needs to be told, but it needs to be told in dramatic fashion. And that's exactly what the four of them did in their independent, individual biographies of Jesus. The closer they got to Jesus's last week, the more their writing slowed down. And the stories that they told and the pictures that they painted were, as someone said, far beyond the tragedies of Sophocles and Shakespeare. And as we read the events around Jesus's last week, It's so slow, it causes us all to slow down and to pause and to consider what does the death of Jesus actually mean? Why is the death of Jesus so important? Why is it important for the world, but more specifically and more personally, why is it so important to me? And if it's not important to me, should it be important? So the events of Jesus's last week and the story of Jesus's last week, which is what we're going to look at today, really begins on Saturday night. On Saturday night when the sun went down, the Sabbath had ended and Jesus was in Bethany. Jesus was in Bethany at a dinner party hosted by Simon the leper. And this was a dinner party that was celebrating the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And so Mary was there, Martha was there, Simon the former leper was there, Lazarus was there, Jesus was there, the disciples were there, and a host of other friends from there in the community were there at that dinner party on Saturday night in Bethany. Now at the very same time that Jesus is at this dinner party in Bethany, a mile and a half away inside Jerusalem, Caiaphas, the Jewish high priest with the upper crust of the Jewish Supreme Court known as the Sanhedrin. They are meeting in private session. They are meeting in secret and in secret they are plotting to take the death of Jesus, Zacchaeus is plotting the death of Jesus and Jesus is in the home of a friend celebrating the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And both of those two things are happening at the same time. Now, the disciples of Jesus who were there in Simon's house and all the friends that had gathered there that night as well, they had no idea. They had no idea what the next few days had in store. Not only did they know, they did not know what the next few days had in store for them, but they specifically did not know what the next few days, most importantly, had in store for Jesus. And so that was Saturday night. So the very next day, obviously, is Sunday. It's what we call Palm Sunday. That's what we celebrate today on the church calendar. This is Palm Sunday. On that particular Sunday, the first Palm Sunday, Jesus left Bethany. And when Jesus left Bethany, he had probably spent the night at Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. He did that often, or some other friends in Bethany. He had lots of friends in Bethany. But when Jesus left Bethany, he left there with a group of people, a large group of people. And those people were not only from Bethany, but those folks were also from Galilee. And so Jesus woke up that morning, and he knew exactly what was happening in Jerusalem. He knew exactly what was about to happen to him. And when it would have been easy for him to retreat, when it would have been easy for him to walk away, even to run away, to head north and to hide from all the tension and all the heat that was waiting for him in Jerusalem, Jesus did the opposite. We're told in the biographies of Jesus that he resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem, that he was determined to go to Jerusalem even though he knew what awaited him there. So they left Bethany. And there's a large group of people that are now traveling with Jesus and the disciples. And as they near the Mount of Olives, Jesus borrows a baby donkey. And Jesus borrows a coat. And this coat will become his makeshift saddle. And Jesus begins to ride on a baby donkey with a borrowed coat for a saddle. And as they near Jerusalem, something totally unexpected happened. People spontaneously... The people traveling with Jesus spontaneously began to throw their coats on the ground. They began to cast tree branches on the ground and they began to shout, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord or Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And all of a sudden, as Jesus rides on the back of a borrowed donkey with a borrowed coat for a saddle, as Jesus nears Jerusalem, This impromptu group of people become a parade. They become a parade of rejects and misfits because we know who's in the crowd that day according to Matthew's biography of Jesus. Matthew said that in the crowd that day were the lame and the blind, the deaf, tax collectors, and sinners, and children. So they're in the midst of blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. As they cast down their coats, and they cast down tree branches. An impromptu parade begins And it was really a parade of misfits and rejects. And that day, what was happening was familiar. But it wasn't the way it was supposed to be. Nothing was as it was supposed to be about this picture. Matter of fact, in the Roman world, in the Oriental first century, when a conquering king would come into his city, he would ride with a golden chariot. He would ride perhaps on his choice stallion. And behind him would be his men of arms, his greatest warriors. And behind them would be the flags and the banners of the vanquished enemies that they had defeated on the battlefield days or weeks before. And behind those banners and behind those flags of their defeated foes were prisoners of war, now slaves to the king. And the king would come in on his chariot or his stallion to the cheers of people with all his choice people closest To him. But here is Jesus. It's similar. And a bit familiar. But it's really not quite the way it's supposed to be. He's riding on the back of a baby donkey. With a borrowed coat. For a saddle. With a parade of misfits and rejects. Which are hailing him as king. But as he approaches the city. He begins to weep. He looks like no king the world has ever seen. The people think they're on their way to a coronation, but Jesus knows that in Jerusalem, there awaits no coronation, only a cross. That was Sunday. Jesus went back to Bethany that night. On Monday, he came back into the city of Jerusalem. He went to the temple and for the second time he's going to, you know, cleanse the temple. He's going to turn over the tables of the money changers because he's so furious that they are abusing the temple system for personal gain. It just drove Jesus to the point of absolute anger to see how the religious establishment and the vendors were turning the whole temple system into a way to obtain wealth and power. So he overturned The tables and it caused quite the scene in the midst of all of this some blame and blind and lame people came to the outer courts of the temple because they were not allowed to go in. They were barred from the temple, but yet what they could not find in religion, the blind and the lame were able to find in Jesus and the same is true today. That what you may have been looking for and what you may have gone looking for in religion, you thought you were not able to find because the whole thing was just made up or the whole thing wasn't for you. But the thing was you looked in the wrong place because you will never find in religion what you can only find in Jesus. And so the blind and the lame, they were there and Jesus healed them. And when he healed them, it caused another commotion, right? I mean, the Pharisees, Sadducees, they really, they, they really embraced order. They loved the order of the temple. They loved to control everything that was going on. As a result of the lame and the blind being killed, children, children who were big fans of Jesus, started yelling because children only know one volume and it's obnoxiously loud right they just started yelling Hosanna Hosanna blessed is the king blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord and the religious establishment the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees they hear the children going crazy and they walk up to Jesus and they said don't you hear what these children are saying why do you let them talk that way and Jesus (laughs) he knew exactly how to push their buttons Jesus said haven't you read the scriptures The scriptures where it says that God from the lips of infants and children will call forth his praise. And they didn't like it, but they had nothing to say. So they walked away. That was Monday. On Tuesday, Jesus is back in the temple again, back confronting the people that he knows is plotting his death. He's not trying to smooth them. He's not trying to win favor with them. He's not trying to love on them and get them to like him. No, this is Jesus. Tough, manly, not weak, not passive. This is masculine Jesus, tough as nails, walking up to the people that are plotting his death. And there at the temple that day, he's teaching, And then, you know, the religious establishment, they come up and ask him questions, questions that Jesus won't answer. And that always drove them crazy. They asked Jesus, they said, by what authority do you do these things? And Jesus said, well, you tell me about, you know, the authority of John the Baptist. Was it of God or was it of himself? And they didn't know what to do. They couldn't answer one way or the other. They were caught and they were like, ah, we don't know. And Jesus said, well, I'm not going to tell you the answer to the question you asked me. And it frustrated them. They hated him for it. Jesus was asked a little while later by one of the religious lawyers, tell me, tell me what is the greatest commandment? Jesus, if you know all this stuff, what is the greatest commandment of all? And in a great piece of irony, Jesus said, let me tell you what the greatest command of all is, is to love God and the second is just like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And the irony of it all was, he was speaking this in the presence of those who were plotting to kill their neighbor. And not only were they plotting to kill their neighbor, but they were plotting to kill their innocent neighbor. And Jesus said the second command is just as important as the first, to love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus, Jesus rears back and he offers a rebuke of the religious establishment that was the most stinging, antagonistic rebuke that he had ever delivered to them. He calls them snakes. He calls them hypocrites. He says, you're making it harder on people to find faith in God. He says, you're putting all your tradition and laws and legalism on the shoulders of these people as burdens and you don't lift one finger to help them out. You're over here counting out your your spices in your spice cabinet in order to tithe your spices, but you neglect mercy and justice and faithfulness. And then he looks at him and he says, you know what? You're the people who have killed the prophets and you're the people who kill those who have been sent to you. To testify to you. And then he drops the bomb on them and he says, and you're going to hell. Now, how would you like to come in? And the sermon was basically that day. Hey, we're glad you're here. Oh, by the way, you're going to hell. (laughs) I think attendance would begin to drop. (laughs) And you can imagine how they felt. Because they were the holiest of the holy. They were the best of the best. They gave when no one else gave. They prayed when no one else prayed. They fasted when no one else fasted. And Jesus looks at them and says, you're going to hell. You're fake. You're a hypocrite. You're pretty on the outside. But you're death on the inside. And they hated him for it. Wednesday, Jesus, we believe, chills out either in Bethany or around the Mount of Olives. But then on Thursday, he comes back into the city. He meets his disciples in the upper room, and there he will celebrate Passover with them. That's the place where we have some of the greatest quotes from Jesus. When Jesus says, guys, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another how I have loved you. You don't understand how I've loved you yet, but in a few days, when you see what's about to happen, you're gonna understand how you are to love one another. It's in the upper room that Jesus looks at Philip and looks at all the rest and says, hey, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. It's in the upper room where he reinvents the meaning of Passover. He says, you've celebrated this for 1600 years. And for 1600 years, you've took the wine and you've took the bread and you've celebrated what God did through Moses when he rescued you from Egypt. But I tell you, from this point on, when you take the cup and you take the bread, you are going to celebrate what God has done for you through me when I delivered you from sin and death. Because I am establishing a new covenant. The old covenant is done away with. It is fulfilled. It is done away. Put a bow on it and file it. Because there's a new covenant. Just like Jeremiah predicted. A covenant where I will forgive sin and remember them no more. A covenant not based on law but based on grace. A covenant not just for one nation of the world but for all nations of the world because whosoever will let them come back to a relationship to their heavenly father. And so Jesus leaves the upper room and he goes to Gethsemane and there he's gonna pray. It's gonna be the most anxiety filled night of Jesus's life thus far. He's gonna suffer from a medical condition known as hematidrosis. His capillaries beneath his skin are gonna burst and they're gonna fill his sweat pockets, his sweat glands with blood. And then he begins to sweat blood. He's under such stress and such anxiety that as he prays in the garden, he doesn't wanna be alone. So he takes his three closest followers, Peter, James, and John, and he says, hey, I'm gonna leave you right here and I'm just gonna go a little bit further, but I want you close by. And it's so striking of the humanity of Jesus because when life falls apart and you're facing perhaps death, you want someone there. You don't want to go to that doctor's appointment by yourself. You don't want to wait to go to surgery by yourself. You don't want to go hear the lab report read back to you by yourself. And Jesus, in striking humanity, did not want to be by himself because he knew that coming to the garden that night was the betrayer, Judas with soldiers, with clubs, spears, and torches. And they arrested Jesus. They took him from the Garden of Gethsemane and they took him to Annas, the former high priest, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the current high priest. And Annas interrogates Jesus, then sends him to Caiaphas. Jesus is gonna have about six trials in a matter of just a few hours. And it's all one big charade. Annas sends him to Caiaphas. And Caiaphas interrogates Jesus, but Jesus won't say a word. So Caiaphas had false witnesses come forward and stand and testify against Jesus. But there was no one there that night at the palace of Caiaphas to stand and testify for Jesus. Judas had betrayed him and the other 11 had betrayed him as well. They had all forsaken him. Peter at this time is denying Jesus three times out in the courtyard And no one is there to stand for Jesus. False witnesses stand and testify against, but not one. Not one of those he healed. Not one of the blind who could now see or the deaf that could now hear or the dead that now lived was there that night to testify for Jesus. He stood and he stood alone. So they blindfolded him. They spit in his face and they slapped and they punched him and they asked him to prophesy. While blindfolded, who it was that was hitting him? Most likely, they kept Jesus in palace's dungeon down in the bottom floor, kept him locked up overnight, and this is where we're in, in, you know introduced to these last hours of Jesus according to Mark. It says very early in the morning after they had held Jesus. After they'd punched, after they slapped him, spit in his face the night before, very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, and the teachers, and the law, and the whole Sanhedrin. The night before it was just a select few of Caiaphas's cronies. Now it's the whole, it's the whole 70-member Sanhedrin, with Caiaphas being number 71. They made their plans, and so they bound Jesus and they led him away and they handed him over to Pilate. Pilate is the Roman governor. He was appointed by Tiberius Caesar. And what you need to know about Pilate, I could tell you lots about his history and it's fascinating, but the one thing you need to know is he was the sole authority. He was the sole authority that had the power to execute anyone. As the governor of that province, as the Roman governor the prefect of that province, Pilate's job was really simple. Collect taxes, skim some off the top, oversee construction projects, and the third and most important thing was to keep order because you were of no good to the emperor and you were of no good to Rome if you could not keep order in the conquered lands. So that was his job. And the thing also you need to know about Herod is he hated the Jews. Most likely he hated Caiaphas. He did things often just to get under their skin. He knew how to push their buttons as well. He loved provoking them. But here comes Caiaphas. Here comes the Jewish religious leadership and they they come to Pilate and they said, we want this man dead. He's broken our law and in our law, our law says this man dies. And in the midst of them talking about the fact they wanted Jesus dead, they mentioned that Jesus was a Galilean. And Pilate was like, okay, if this guy's a Galilean, I don't know why you're messing up my schedule. I got things to do. I don't want to deal with this. If he's a Galilean, I'm sending him to Herod. King Herod, the same Herod that killed John the baptizer, Jesus's cousin, And so they took Jesus to Herod. And Herod was actually excited about meeting Jesus because he wanted Jesus to perform a trick for him. He wanted Jesus to perform a miracle for him because he had heard about Jesus. And Herod and his men would interrogate Jesus question after question after question. And Jesus remained silent. It's not what Jesus said that stands out in these last hours of his life. It's the things that he would not say. And so Herod asked questions and Jesus refused to answer. And so he had some of his men put a robe on Jesus because let's make fun of this guy. This is the King of the Jews. This guy won't even speak. This is your King. Okay, let's put a, let's put a robe on him and let's mock him and ridicule him. And then Herod sent him back to Pilate. Once he was back at Pilate, Pilate interrogated Jesus. And Pilate said, are you the King of the Jews? Asked Pilate. And then Jesus, he would say these things. And it's like, Jesus said, you've said so. You have said so. And we know what happened in part of this conversation, not only because of what Mark says, but also because of what Matthew says and what also John says. And this is what John says also was part of this conversation. This is how John records it. That Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. And so, Pilate says, you are a king then? You're a king, is that what you're saying? You're admitting to it, you're a king? And Jesus answered and said, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. And everyone who is on the side of truth listens to me. And Pilate, Pilate on one hand, he's fascinated. On the other hand, he's irritated. He's never, he's never dealt with anybody like this before. He's never had such a difficult conversation in all of his life. This is a man who's used to asking a good question and having it answered. He can't get anything out of Jesus. And what we see happening in this moment is what's happening throughout the entire event. It is truth versus power. This is what this whole thing is all about. It is about truth versus power. The power of the temple personified in Caiaphas. The power of Rome personified in Pilate versus the truth personified in Jesus. We love to think about in a world where power and truth are on the same side. But power and truth are very seldom ever on the same side. And in this moment, Jesus looks at Pilate and says, Pilate, this is like truth against power. And you need to know that when someone sides with me, they are siding with truth. And Jesus knew Pilate's heart and he knew his thoughts. And here's what Jesus is ultimately saying to Pilate that we're going to discover. Pilate, you have to decide something. You can't stay in the middle when it comes to me. You can't be neutral when it comes to me. There is a choice to be made. You're going to have to side with truth or you're going to have to side with power, but you are not going to be able to side with both. So we pick it back up in Mark. Mark says, the chief priests accused Jesus of many things. And so Pilate again asked him, aren't you going to answer? Don't you hear what they're saying? All this stuff. Why don't you say something? See how many things they're accusing you of? But Mark says, but Jesus still made no reply and Pilate was amazed. Jesus, innocent, refuses to defend himself. Pilate has seen guilty person after guilty person after guilty person pretend to be innocent and defend themselves. But now for the first time maybe ever he has got an innocent person in front of him who will not defend himself so Pilate goes to Caiaphas and says, Caiaphas, I don't, I don't know what you're up to entirely, but there's nothing wrong with this man. I find no fault with this man. He doesn't deserve to die. And so here's what Pilate says. Pilate says, I'll tell you what, save face for me, save face to you. I'm gonna punish him and then I'm gonna release him. I'm gonna punish him, then I'm gonna release him. And so the story goes on, Caiaphas hears that and says, what do you mean you're gonna release him? This is not the plan. It says, now it was the custom at the festival, this Passover time, to release a prisoner whom the people requested. Now, there was a Roman tradition, apparently, and and they would do it in different provinces where they would allow the oppressed people to choose one prisoner who had been arrested and convicted and put in jail to be released once a year, maybe twice a year. So this is what this is talking about. And this was a win-win for Rome you know, and the Jewish people. They would get one of their own back who'd been arrested and Rome would look like they're trying to serve the people and pacify the people. And so it worked out in, in both ways. So they requested a man called Barabbas, who was imprisoned with insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. So here's a guy, absolutely unquestionably guilty. Guilty. Guilty of insurrection. And so this is a choice. They're asking for one man to be released, and it's not Jesus. They're asking for a guilty man that everybody knows is guilty. Pilate knows is guilty. Caiaphas knows is guilty. The nation knows this man is guilty, but they're asking for a guilty man to go free so an innocent man can be held. It says that the crowd, that the crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. And so Pilate, he can't figure this whole thing out. He's like, what are these people up to? And so he says, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? I mean, this is a nice guy. A little weird conversational tactic he has, but he's a nice guy. You want me to let him go? You don't want me to let this guy go? You want to let Barabbas, this is who you're wanting? Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. So he knew what was going on. He knew that this was a power struggle. He knew this was about Caiaphas' little temple kingdom. But it says, but the chief priest stirred up the crowd. They manipulated, they pushed buttons to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. So Pilate, you can't make sense of this whole thing. Why in the world do they want this guilty guy to go? And why do they want to punish What are they so afraid of? And that was the thing that Pilate couldn't couldn't get. Caiaphas, why are you so afraid of this man? He won't even defend himself. He won't even speak up. He doesn't even have the aggressive nature to speak up. You're afraid of this guy? Why do you want this guilty guy? So in order, because at this point, Pilate, he, he doesn't want to put Jesus to death. And it's not that he's just a nice guy, but he knows if he lets Jesus go, he's also going to get on the nerves of Caiaphas and the Jewish people. But he doesn't want Jesus to die. He doesn't want to put Jesus to death. So he comes up with a plan in his mind about a way that he can garner sympathy for Jesus from the crowd. So this is what John says he decides in this moment. That Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. Because if you know anything about flogging, Pilate was gonna have Jesus flogged. And it was such a horrible thing that surely once the people saw Jesus after he was flogged by Roman soldiers, they would say, Okay, that's good enough. We back off. Surely, surely Pilate didn't think that after flogging, they would still want him. dead. now if you don't know anything about flogging, the Romans were skilled at this. They had a whole unit that did this for a living. And they would whip someone 39 times. It had a wooden handle and all of these leather strands that made multiple whips out of one whip. And on each strand of leather was stone and jagged bone mixed in with glass. And Roman soldiers were so skilled at whipping someone 39 times, they would take them as close to death as they could get them without them actually dying. And you can read about this on your own. We can talk about it in great detail. Many of us would be so uncomfortable, we'd t- be tempted to stand up and walk away. But they took Jesus and they took his hands and they wrapped him around a pole and they exposed his entire backside. He was completely naked. And they began to whip him 39 times. And every time that they would whip, they would jerk with the bone and the stone and the glass and they would rip open his skin. And with each successive strike, they tore deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper, severing muscle and tendon and ligament from the shoulders down to his ankles. Oftentimes, partially exposing the bowel on the side. And they would take a person as close to death as they could get them without them actually dying. And this is what Matthew said happened next. After the flogging, the governor's soldier took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on his filleted back. And then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and then they knelt in front of him and they mocked him. And they said, Hail, King of the Jews. King of the Jews. And they spit on him. And they took the staff and they struck him on the head again and again. And Pilate more convinced than ever ever, that this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong, deserving of death. He takes Jesus in his bloody mess, bleeding, muscle exposed, bone exposed, looks as though Jesus has been in some type of grinder and marches him out there with a crown of thorns on his head and a scarlet robe. And he looks at the people and Pilate says, Behold your king. Behold your king. And then Pilate asked a question that history has been unable to forget. It is a question that you must ask and it is a question you must answer. It is a question we all must ask and a question we all must answer. Pilate then said, what shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? And Pilate could have never perhaps anticipated what was said next. Then he heard it, crucify him. They shouted, Pilate, why? I don't understand, why are you afraid of this man? Look at him, he's a bloody mess. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. And as Jesus stands there wounded, Pilate looks at him one last time and says, come on, you gotta give me something. You need to answer my question. Don't you know that I have the power to either set you free or kill you? And Jesus said, listen, you have no power except it has already been given to you from heaven above. And then in the midst of that conversation, Caiaphas throws his trump card and Caiaphas says, Pilate, he calls himself a king. How can you let a man who calls himself a king go free and still be a friend to Caesar? And Pilate knew in that moment that neutrality was not an option. And so he made a decision and he sided with power. And Mark says, wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. And in that moment, the most sophisticated religious system in all of the world and the most politically powerful empire in all of the world, the temple and the empire joined hands together and they brought their full power to bear on one man, a carpenter from Nazareth. A Galilean, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus had been hated by the temple, betrayed by his friends, mocked by the crowds. And now he's condemned to death by the empire. The Romans didn't invent crucifixion. They just perfected it. They took Jesus from the Praetorian in Pilate's Hall and they put a crossbeam on his shoulder, the same shoulder that had been whipped and flogged a few moments before. That crossbeam would have weighed somewhere between 75 to 125 pounds, and the practice of the day was that the condemned would carry it to the place of execution, and in this case, it was a place called Golgotha. He was expected to carry it between 600 and 1,000 yards but already weak from a loss of blood, perhaps in emotional shock and certainly in physical shock, he falls beneath the weight of the crossbeam, and they call for someone out of the crowd to carry it for him. They take him to Golgotha and they extend his hands and they lay him on his back and they take a seven inch Roman nail and they drive it between the two bones in his wrist. They do so precisely as to eliminate a massive loss of blood, severing the median nerve in the process, sending heat, painful excruciation throughout his entire body. They do the same on the other side. And then they stick a nail through his feet. Then they hoist him up and they drop the cross into a hole that is meant to hold the cross in place. And more times than not, the jarring of the cross once laid into the hole would cause the condemned's shoulders to become dislocated. And thus became Jesus's reality over the next few hours, an unbelievable cycle of pain. With his shoulders dislocated and his arms elevated, difficult to breathe, in order to get a breath, he would have to push with his feet that were nailed to the cross in order to get a breath. As his breathing slowed and his blood became acidotic and as he went further into shock, his lungs and his heart began to fill with fluid. Breathing becomes more difficult and his heart rate erratic. And It was in those moments that he looked at the crowd what he saw was what he had always seen. He saw a group of people hurting and helpless, sheep without a shepherd. And he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And the shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. We hear the voice of a child who cries out to his dad, why have you forsaken me? Where did you go? Everyone has left. It appears even his father. The last thing that Jesus would say that day, he would whisper up It is finished, it is finished. And with that, he made the final sacrifice for sin forever. Peter, who denied Jesus and came back, made sense of it all when he said, for Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. They had let a guilty man go so an innocent man could die in his place. And what was true for Barabbas that day can be true for every man, woman, boy, and girl. That as guilty as we are, we can go free because an innocent man died in our place. And on the cross, God was redefined and sin was clarified and we were all pointed to life and hope that's only found in Jesus. And Paul said it this way, for God demonstrated his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, because of the cross, you never have to question how God feels about you. You never have to wonder how God feels about you on your worst day, at your worst moment. Because of the cross, you know that even then, he loves you and he would rather die than not forgive those who are guilty. See, the cross reminds me, there is no sin I'm not capable of committing. It was my sin, it was our sin, it was Caiaphas' sin, it was Pilate's sin. And the cross also reminds me, there's no sin God isn't capable of forgiving because the cross reminds us all that our sin is great, but God's grace is greater. And every time my sin comes up against God's grace, grace wins. And the cross stands as a reminder, that even when I don't love him, he loves me. And even when I don't love me, he loves me. And I never have to question whether or not God loves me because on the cross, God proved his love for me. So the only question for you, is a question that Pilate asked, what will you do with Jesus, the King of the Jews? because you cannot be neutral. You will have to side with him or you will side against him. What will you do with Jesus? All of our heads are bowed and all of our eyes are closed. If you're here and you've never trusted Jesus, maybe, thought, maybe because you think you, you don't need God. Perhaps you think you've been too wrong for God to want you. I wanna give you an opportunity to just pray and receive Jesus right there where you are. To say, Heavenly Father, I believe you love me because the cross tells me so. And right now, the best way I know how, I ask you to forgive me. Thank you that even though I'm guilty, I can be forgiven because you stood in my place. And today, the best way I know how, I wanna follow Jesus. I make you, Jesus, Lord and Savior of my life. And I pray this in Jesus' name.